He is risen. Amen. That is a great glory. That's our great boast. That's why we can pray to him, and that's why we worship, because he's alive. And that's true all the time. That's what we remember, of course, this day, for it is the resurrection Sunday after Good Friday, where he had died on the cross, but now he is alive. And the tomb has been empty, which is evidence that our sins have been dealt with. All right, turn with me, and we will be in Matthew chapter 27. And if you're very astute, uh, you know this is Easter, it's Resurrection Sunday. And the scripture that we read and that we're studying this morning seemed to say nothing about the resurrection. Rick, you missed it. I, I did miss it. I had hoped, like a couple months ago, that we would preach Matthew 28 today. I didn't get there. I got slowed down. So here we are in chapter 27. But we are preparing, Jesus is preparing to die, and of course then he's preparing to be resurrected. The resurrection makes little sense other than a strange miracle or circumstance if you don't understand what his death was about. So that's what we're going to see this morning. And we're going to see that in a particular way as we consider who are the guilty ones and who are the innocent ones from this text. In that way, it's a classic mystery, a whodunit story. Many love those classic mystery novels. My mother was one. She devoured books, especially those written by Agatha Christie, like Murder on the Orient Express, which I'm familiar with the story because it became a movie, and then I saw the movie. But anyway, that's beside the point. She read the book. And in the story, there's this famous train, the Orient Express, of course, and it stopped in the snow so that those that were on the train could not get off or get on over the night. But the coach awakened to the cries that Mr. Samuel Ratchet had been murdered. And so then you have a classic, who did it? Who's the guilty one? Who stabbed Mr. Ratchet? So the mystery unfolds as Detective Perot discovers that all of those stuck on the train, because the murderer must be on the train, no one got off or on, as he starts to interview each one of those that are in the compartments on that train, he realizes every one of those passengers has some connection to Mr. Ratchet. Each one beyond that actually had a motive for his murder. And so then truth be told, totally spoiling the story for you, But the answer to the question, well, who murdered Mr. Ratchet? Who's guilty? The answer in the story, they all did it. Each one of them had a role to play in murdering Mr. Ratchet that night. They all played a part. They were all guilty. Interestingly, as we turn to our text of study this Easter morning, we encounter a trial, and it's going to lead to a murder because it's going to be an unjust trial, crucifixion. And we're going to become introduced as the story opens to these various characters in this trial. You're going to see all kinds of motives, different peoples with different excuses, different claims to their own innocence. Who done it? Who's guilty? Who's responsible? Who is guilty for the death of Jesus Christ? Because one thing, and that's crystal clear and repeatedly throughout this text, is this. Jesus is not guilty. And we all are. And that's what's so vital to see as we turn to this text. Discover Jesus' total innocence. That is, he did not deserve what's about to happen to him in the least. But that's so vital for you to see, for that is the only way he can be your guilt-bearing substitute. 
He can only bear your guilt and take your place if he was entirely, perfectly pure, innocent. And Matthew gives us five testimonies in the case to show Jesus' innocence. Let's see the first. It is this. The betrayer confesses Jesus' innocence. Verses 1 to 5. In the first place, the very one, of course, Judas, who betrays Jesus in the first place, the one who stabbed Jesus in the back, even Judas knew that Jesus was innocent. And yet, even though that's the case, what do we find as he was tried before the high priests? Jesus comes out guilty. And so we pick it up now in chapter 27. We're in the morning. It's Friday morning. This is the Friday morning of Good Friday. And we have this summary statement from the Jewish leaders about what their intentions are for Jesus, what they want to do with him now that they've caught him, judged him, and condemned him. Verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. So that's what they want to do. They're going to kill him. That's what they've been after this whole time. Remember the beginning of chapter 26. But regardless of whatever their intentions are, the Jewish leaders understand that they cannot put him to death on their own authority. They're under Roman occupation. The only people that can execute anybody are the Romans. So the next step is they need to take him to Pilate, the Roman governor, verse 2. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over, that is Jesus, of course, to Pilate, the governor. And we had been considering last time with Peter and then Peter's denials Peter had seen the whole trial unfold before the Jewish leaders. But he was not the only one watching, apparently. Judas, the betrayer, he too was standing by watching, seeing what would happen through the trial. And now he suddenly, Judas is, very concerned. He's very grieved because he's come to realize something of the great evil that he has done. Verse 3, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And we talked about this last time, so we can be brief here. But when it says Judas changed his mind, that's too weak an expression. Many other translations say something otherwise. Better said, he was stricken with grief, Judas was. He was captivated by remorse, realizing his wrong. He wishes to undo now what he has done and seeing where this is going. He sees the Jewish leaders. They were serious. They're really going to try and kill Jesus. And Jesus is not going to get out of this. Jesus is not going to call down legions of angels to deliver him. The die has been cast, Judas sees. And now he feels it in his bones. And so what does he do? He barges into their council among the Jewish leaders And one, he returns the blood money, and then two, he announces, verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he says. I just note that. This concession that Judas makes is astounding. The evil, right? I mean, he's the archetype of betrayal, Judas. The hard-hearted, cold-blooded, betray him with a kiss, Judas, Even he feels regret over his evils. He knows he sinned. And he sinned big time. He says as much, I have sinned. And he sinned big time in that he's betrayed an innocent man, one who did not deserve any of this. 
And Judas, of course, knew that better than almost anyone else. He was part of the twelve. He had been with Jesus for three years. He was his friend. He knew Jesus intimately, again, better than most. Of all people, Judas knew how innocent Jesus was, how good he was, how gracious he was, how guileless, how pure, how innocent, how righteous. He knew how sinless Jesus was. Judas knew that Jesus had not done anything crosswise against him. And the guilt of that, to see what he had done to his friend, overwhelms him. Again, he barges in and he announces to the leaders as he's giving them back the gold, I've sinned by betraying an innocent man, innocent blood. Verse 4, here's their response. You can see they don't care. They don't give a rip. What is that to us, Judas? See to it yourself. We got what we want. We got Jesus. I don't really care about your soul and all of your evils. That's your problem. And with that, Judas sees, at least in his own mind, as warped as it was at this time, stricken with grief, he thought there's no way back. There's no solution for this guilt. There's no way to make things right for they won't even hear him. And so the guilt of his evil betrays him, overtakes him. The guilt was too great, he thought. He was too far gone. And so sadly, we read this, verse 5. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. Having again done such a horrible deed, given over, to abuse and scorn and injustice and murder and torture and worse, the only innocent one, the only one who never deserved any of this, the guilt for that was too much for Judas. And so what does he do? If he can't make amends with the Jewish leaders, if he can't even give back the money, he has to try and punish himself, try and condemn himself. He feels as though that's the best he can do. How about you this morning? Have you spurned Jesus? Have you rejected him? Have you used his name in vain? Have you cursed him? Have you neglected him? Have you tried to silence and ignore him and his word? And now do you feel the guilt pressing in? That is, you know you are the guilty one. Who's guilty? Who did it? You're seeing it was you. You've done the wrong. And maybe that's ever so apparent to you that every waking moment you're racked with this guilt. So have you come in this morning? Everybody's wearing their Sunday best and smiles and flowers of Easter. But you have come with guilt feelings. Despair. Hopelessness. You wouldn't be the only one. Are there wrongs that you have done in this life that you know just can't get fixed? There's no atonement you can make that can't be undone. You can't go back and relive it or redo it. And so what do you do? You try and condemn yourself for relief. And not even by ending your life. And please don't. Don't even think of it. But in other ways, you condemn yourself by trying to ruin your life or inflict pain or to separate from others, to withdraw Withdraw from others, withdraw from God, withdraw from church, withdraw from joy, withdraw from whatever 
might make you feel better. You say, no, no, I'm too guilty. That's not for me. Maybe you're even here. You came to church to try and punish yourself. Or maybe you're at the six o'clock service thinking, that'll get merit with God. I'll feel better then for making that sacrifice. But in your guilt, you know none of that works. And do you feel too far gone? Well, let me tell you, by the authority of the word of God, you are not too far gone. But to know that, you need to see you are guilty. But you also need to see then there is one who is innocent, the Lord Jesus Christ. Next, we see his innocence confirmed by the Jewish leaders, interestingly enough. The leaders confirm Jesus' innocence, verses 6 to 10. And what's so striking is that they do it accidentally. They don't mean to. But in their great self-righteous devotion to rituals, the true understanding of even them comes out that, yes, Jesus was an innocent man. And this shows itself as then the Jewish leaders, they got to figure out, well, what are we going to do with this money that Judas gave us back that he tossed in the temple sanctuary? Verse 6, But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Isn't this interesting? Now, because of Old Testament law, which these guys knew and they said they loved, Deuteronomy 23, verse 18, for example, God forbade Israel from giving money to the temple or to him, so to speak, that was acquired in a sinful way. The particular reference is actually to prostitution. You couldn't then give that money back to God in the temple, but blood money would fall under that as well. Of course, here's the colossal irony of it all on two fronts. First, they were so scrupulous how to handle this money that Judas has thrown back into the temple. They were so careful with what to do with it based on God's holy law. But they disregarded, they put that law all aside when it came down to fair trials and false witnesses and oaths and lying. And mainly, most of all, in condemning the innocent. They put it all aside for convenience. But second, so great is this irony. Where did Judas get that money to start with? He got it from them. Judas threw back the blood money that they had given him. They hired him for this. This was their money all along. And they know it was evil. They know it was blood money. They know it was money for hire for murder. They then admit, by saying we can't put this into the treasury, they admit their own guilt to the whole conspiracy. And yet, and this is so indicative of the self-righteous. So be warned, all of us who were in church on Easter, so indicative of the self-righteous is that you cannot even see your own guilt. Even though everybody else can. And that's what becomes so clear as this text unfolds. So if they can't accept the donation from Judas, verse 7 now, so they took counsel and bought with the silver the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. So they're like, what are we going to do with this money? Oh, I know, because we're so caring. This great philanthropic act, we will buy some land for the poor stranger that dies in Jerusalem. Oh, they would have a place to be buried. And surely as they told themselves and came with the idea, they were patting themselves on the back. But everybody knew where the money came from. Look at verse 8. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. 
Everybody in Jerusalem knew that that field was bought with blood money. Even the leaders owned blood money. Everybody knew who the guilty ones were, except apparently the ones who were guilty, the Jewish leaders. The guilty ones, it wasn't even just Judas, who even probably hung himself in that field. But the people perceived the leader's guilt and so then understood Jesus' innocence. And the hypocrisy of it all is that they can't even see it. But that's not all they can't see. They're also blind to God's very word they love. Look at this. This is astounding. If it wasn't so true in our own life. The leaders didn't even realize the very prophecies they were bringing to pass. Look at verses 9 and 10 now of Matthew 27. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, more precisely, this prophecy was given by the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, not Jeremiah. But, note this, number one, Jeremiah did fulfill a part of this prophecy when he bought a field. That's in his prophecy. But then two, Jeremiah was the longest of the prophets. And so his name could be shorthand for any one of the prophets, especially when you have them combined together here. That, that is, you have a prophecy from Zechariah, you got a prophecy from Jeremiah, and they're coming together in this one instance. That's why you can say, oh, this is prophesied in the chief prophet Jeremiah. Either way, the thrust of the quote from the prophets was this. Long ago, in Zechariah's day, see, the Jewish leaders paid off Zechariah, the prophet. They paid him off for 30 pieces of silver. Why? So that he would no longer shepherd the people of Israel. So he'd no longer give the people of Israel the prophecies of God. He'd no longer give God's people God's word. They paid him off for 30 pieces of silver. They rejected him as their shepherd. And what's happened? Well, they've done the very same thing once again. Unjustly, they've rejected God's word, they've paid off God's shepherd, and they've insulted him in the process by putting him at this paltry sum for a price. But here's the point. Even in, they are so narrow-focused, so hard-hearted in their rebellion, they have no idea what they're doing, that they're actually fulfilling the law of God against themselves. And so that's the thing. To begin to that question, who done it? Who's the guilty one? Again, it's not Jesus. He's innocent. Condemned he was, but he was the innocent one. But what the guilty ones couldn't see was their own very guilt. So this morning, do you see you do you even see your guilt before God? We started considering the last point. There's some that are overcome by guilt, but there are many others who have little reckoning of their guilt at all. Are, are you blind to your own failings and sins before the holy God? Or do you consider yourself, I'm a good person, mostly. I'm a religious person. I'm at church on Easter. That's got to be worth something. I'm a good Christian. But do you know your sins? Do you know the weight of your sins, your guiltiness before God? Because get this, note this, there's only one innocent one. It's either you or it's Jesus. Who's it going to be? 
And until you can see your own guilt, Jesus' true innocence can be of no help or encouragement to you. Next, we find our Savior, verses 11 to 14. And we find our Savior defend not his innocence. Interestingly enough, he keeps quiet. He chooses not to defend himself. But he will deny nothing either. Look at this. Look at verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor, that's Pilate, asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. Now note this. Jesus understood when he said, Yes, you have said so. He was not just saying yes to the question. He was saying yes to the cross. He was saying yes to abuse. He was saying yes to suffering. He was saying yes to probably the most horrific means of public execution concocted by men. Of course, though, Jesus knew all along the plan that he had from the Father would lead to the cross. He foretold it many times to his disciples. For example, this is Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. When he said, the Son of Man, that's his favorite reference to himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. We've seen that. And they're going to condemn him to death. We saw that. And they're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles. This is where we're at to have what? To be mocked, flogged, and crucified. Jesus always knew this is what was going to happen. And yet, when he's asked the question, he does not fold. He does not flinch. He does not cower and run away like Peter did. He embraces the road and the will the Father had sent before him. Yes, I'm the king of the Jews. But then, as Jesus first answers Pilate, now the accusers pile on. Look at verse 12. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, Jesus gave no answer. Remember that? Like the first trial before the Jewish leaders? They kept hurling insults at him, false witnesses. And what did Jesus say? He said nothing. And he does it again. As they heap insults, misunderstandings, slanders, half-truths, condemnation, lies, Jesus says nothing. And this shocks Pilate. Look at verses 13 and 14. Hey, Jesus, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Pilate has to be thinking to himself, Jesus, this is a horrible defense strategy. Like, you need a lawyer right now. Better than the one that's you, quiet. You're going to die, Jesus. Don't you see where this is going? But that's the thing. He saw precisely where this was all going. And what's he doing? He's keeping quiet. He's reprising his role once again as that sacrificial lamb. The innocent lamb being led to the slaughter. Why? Because that means he's going to die for his people to save them. Of course, it was the prophet Isaiah who foretold this to us. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And then it's the question, why? Why is he like this? Why is he so quiet? Isaiah tells us, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Isn't that what we see going on here? This is oppression. This is judgment. All of the mock trials, all of the false accusations. But why? Again, Isaiah gives the answer. 53, 8. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, killed, 
Why? Stricken for the transgression of my people. Why is this happening? Not for any wrongs he has done, but because he's dying for the wrongs that all of his people had committed. He was being stricken, not for his guilt, not for his crimes, not for his missteps, but for ours, if you trust him. And so in that sense, what objection really can be made? What defense can he give? It's true, he's not guilty, that is of his own doing, but he knows the path before him, and he's taking our guilt that we don't have to. So he's going to be silent. He's going to make sure he doesn't weasel out of the cross because he has set his heart and mind like flint to do the will of God and save the people of God, and there is no other way. There is no defense. He is innocent, but he's guilty too, but not of his own doing, but by taking yours, that he makes you innocent before God. This is our great Savior. Fourth, it's true, Pilate... The governor suspects Jesus' innocence. Verses 15 to 19 now. That is, even though Jesus hasn't said a word, he gives no defense for himself, and even though they heap plenteous accusations against him, Pilate, he knows Jesus is innocent. He suspects it. And he's shrewd. Ultimately, he's a politician in this way. He can read between the lines. And as he surmises, yes, Jesus is innocent. Aha, I have just the way to get Jesus out of this problem and get me out of this mess too. There's this tradition. Let's look at it, verse 15. Back to Matthew 27. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. This is my solution. And the people get to choose who it is. See, this is a way that he can get around the Jewish leaders and their manipulation of everything. He gets to give the voice back to the people that they can ask for any one prisoner they want to be given back. And so he's concocted this plan. This is perfect. I know what I'll do. I'll pit this peaceful, meek Jesus against a known murderer, and they will obviously choose Jesus to have set free. They loved Jesus. Remember, it was just not even a week ago on Palm Sunday when he rode into town and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They love this Jesus guy. They'll ask for his release. And who am I going to pit him against? This Barabbas character, verse 16. And then they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. It's interesting. Some of your translations actually read in some of the ancient texts say a notorious prisoner named Jesus Barabbas. It's quite possible that Barabbas actually bore the name Jesus, as we would say, kind of like your first name, that he was Jesus Barabbas. But whatever precisely his name was, this Barabbas was well known, but not for good, right? Mark's and Luke's gospel tell us that he was a known murderer, a rebel. He had killed people. And no doubt, and many had probably seen it happen. Everybody knew he was guilty. Everybody knew Barabbas should be punished. Again, such if I put this choice between peaceful Jesus and that murderer Barabbas, they'll surely ask back for Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 17 now. 
So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Who do you want me to give you, Jesus Barabbas, the murderer, or Jesus the Christ from Nazareth? And again, he figured out who they would ask for, so he thought. And why is that? Well, look at verse 18 now. For Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. See, again, the Jewish leaders were trying to manipulate the situation. They were trying to have Jesus bumped off. So despite whatever pious and devoted reasons, even to Rome, let alone to God, that the Jewish leaders gave about why Jesus should be killed, Pilate wasn't buying any of it. He knew Jesus was on trial, not for some great evil. Jesus was on trial because they hated him. They were envious of him. They envied, the Jewish leaders envied Jesus' following. They envied his wisdom. They envied his authority. And I'm sure they didn't like it too much as Jesus so critically rebuked them. Remember Matthew chapter 23. Pilate knew all this. And so now Pilate, it's his turn to try and manipulate the situation, providing a way for Jesus' release and a way for him to get out of this pickle. Because again, it wasn't for justice sake Jesus was on trial, but envy and hatred. Because what does this underscore for us? Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. And not only did Pilate know this, but his wife knew this. Look at verse 19. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate's wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that note, righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. And so however it happened, apparently Pilate's wife awoke from this bad dream about the horrors that would happen if they did something wrong to that righteous man, Jesus. So the two of them, they're trying to figure out some way to get out from being responsible for Jesus' downfall. What an injustice that would be. Notice then, Pilate, who is the one in charge, he can even set up this choice, right? Pilate is taking no responsibility for this. He's trying to please the crowds. He's been trying to manipulate the situation. He's not willing to declare the truth. He's not willing to just stand up for justice. Again, he's like a politician, negotiating, compromising. And so then as it comes to Jesus' eventual condemnation and murder, doesn't that make Pilate guilty? He's ultimately the one that has to give over Jesus to be crucified. And he knew Jesus was innocent. Why doesn't he do something? He knows standing up for justice right now would be so costly. It was going to make life more difficult for Pilate if he was stood up for righteousness now. That might cause a riot. Remember, he might be thinking things like, think about the greater good. Other people might die. Surely my superiors in Rome, they would be upset if there was a, a mob here. So what does he do? He chooses the path of least resistance. The path of cowardice, not courage. And in this, Pilate stands guilty, condemning an innocent man. But what about you? Have you tried to compromise with Jesus? Manipulate him? Make a halfway between you and him? Have you tried to follow him, but only as long as it was convenient for you? As long as you could please yourself, or maybe please those around you, please the cool kids, fit in with the culture... And maybe please Jesus too. Great. This is a great combination. 
Have you been trying to negotiate a way that you can have it all? Trying to live your way and then somehow fit God in the picture. Well, dare I say, in so doing, you have seen and you know Jesus is innocent. He is right. And you have incriminated yourself as guilty for not following him. Are you not the one who should be punished? Finally, the final testimony here to Jesus' innocence is this. We see the crowds, the masses, they ignore Jesus' innocence. They won't even hear it. Verses 20 to 26. Despite all of his schemes and his manipulation of the situation, everything really blows up in Pilate's face. He could not foresee the leader's influence over the crowds. And so look at verse 20. Now, chief priests and elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. You get the sense as Pilate's deliberating, well, what am I going to do about this? The leaders were starting to spread lies about Christ in the masses, in the crowd. Listen, the Romans are going to take the temple from us if people keep getting excited and all hysterics about this Jesus character. Besides that, we heard this morning, we heard him blaspheme the name of God under oath. See, he has demons, just as we have said all along. He's evil, Whatever their story they spun, it worked amazingly powerfully among these once adoring crowds. Again, the great contrast of Palm Sunday. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and now they are crying out for his death. And so then as Pilate gives them the choice of which Jesus to ask for, the rebel or the Messiah, verse 21 The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, shockingly, Barabbas. We'll take Barabbas, thank you very much. Yeah, him, the known murderer. That's the one. It would be better to have that known murderer go free than dare let that wretch from Nazareth escape. And so, puzzled perhaps, Pilate then asks, well, what should be done with Jesus? Verse 22 Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. Crucified? Doesn't that seem a bit harsh? And maybe his wife's dream looms even larger in Pilate's mind now, seeing where this is probably going. The Roman governor, he seems to object. I mean, what justification can be given for this, for capital punishment? What can be done? What evil has he done? Verse 23. Why? What evil has he done, Pilate said. And again, this is the time. Crowd, you have the opportunity. You can tell us all the evils he's done, all the cruelties, all the sins he's done against you. List them now to justify his execution. And what can they say? What reason do they give? There is none. Mob violence kicks in. The end of verse 23. But they shouted, all the more. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. There was no wrong he had done. There was no violence. There was no rational argument to put forward to justify his death. This is no longer evidently about justice or equity. There's no reasoning with this mob. They just shout down Pilate's question with, let him be crucified. And Pilate sees he's getting nowhere fast. 
a riot's about to break out. But he feels like he has no choice. He's going to have to give the masses what they want, this innocent man. And Pilate, he doesn't agree with this. He wants everyone to know, so he puts on this elaborate show, literally washing his hands of the whole situation. I won't be responsible. Look at verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Two things you need to know. Pilate claims his own innocence. We started in the story. Judas said, I gave over innocent blood. And now Pilate steps in to say, that innocent blood is me. Because he knows Jesus isn't guilty either. And he's not going to be responsible for this. He claims he is innocent. Second, Pilate ultimately then tries to put all the guilt on the crowd. See to it yourselves. Doesn't that sound like something the Jewish leaders told Judas earlier? What's that to us? You see to it. Pilate saying the same thing. Trying to pretend he's not guilty. Deflecting his guilt. Throwing it back on them. And at that opportunity, the crowd horrifyingly accepts. Verse 25, and the people answered at that proposition, his blood be on us and on our children. Those are damning words. What evil injustice. Don't worry, Pilate, we'll take full responsibility for this man as if they can take it from him. And so then Pilate gives them what they want. Jesus on a platter or a cross. Verse 26, then he released for them Barabbas. Having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. That's where you want to cry out, mistrial! Injustice! And you'd be right. This is the greatest injustice of all of history. The only innocent one. The only one who had never sinned. The one whose innocence has been confirmed through this text from his betrayer, from the Jewish leaders, from Jesus himself, from Pilate, from the crowds. They've all said he's innocent of the crimes. He doesn't deserve to die. Then what is this all about? Why was he despised and forsaken, stricken, smitten, and afflicted? Why would it be that the only one without sin, the only one who's ever lived and not sinned and not deserved death, why would he get the penalty of death? Well, the prophet Isaiah once again gives us the answer. You can turn there or listen. It's a famous text. Many of us have memorized it or heard it before. Isaiah 53. The prophet provides the answer. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is where it holds together. Why was he punished? Why was he stricken? Not for what he had done. For what we had done being placed on him. To be pierced instead of us. To be crushed instead of us. To be beaten, chastised, wounded, cursed instead of us. And for why? But for us. For our sins that he took on himself. And so then what happens next? You get released from death row is what happens. Scot-free. Just like Barabbas. And then you can look to the actual judgment day, the courtroom day for you. 
And you can cry out with the Apostle Paul from Romans 8. When on that day it can be announced who would condemn us, who would say we are guilty. And our response would be, Christ Jesus is the one who died for me. He was already condemned. He already took my place. He already took my sins. So no punishments left. And that's not all. Paul goes on and he says this, Romans 8.34. More than that, he was raised. And he's now at the right hand of God interceding for all of his people. So we know That the innocent one, he was not dying for his sins. He was dying for the sins of another. And I ask, was that yours? Because if it was, when he died and then rose again, that is proof the Father accepted the sacrifice and you have forgiven in Christ for all time. So note that, brothers and sisters, when we say he is risen, he is risen indeed, that's to say he dealt with my sins, he put them to death, and he rose from the dead that they're paid in full, that now I have life, eternal life in Jesus Christ. And what's the proof of his innocence? The resurrection. What's the proof of his death for me? The resurrection. This is the proof of eternal life. Who then is guilty? Who then is innocent? Well, in the gospel, he gets the guilt. Our guilt that we get his innocence. That's what the cross is all about. And that could only happen if he had been pure, if he had been a sinless substitute, able to then take on sins and die for them because he had none to die for himself. One pastor said it so well to summarize this text. The wrong Jesus was released. The wrong Jesus was scourged. The wrong Jesus was crucified. But God used all these wrongs to make everything right. He who did nothing wrong was condemned for everything, so that we who have done everything wrong should be condemned for nothing. Let's praise him that nothing condemns those who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Indeed, O God, what a glory the gospel is that we remember every Lord's Day that you died. You took on our sins. You took on death. You took on hell. You took on all the punishment and you won for all your people. This is the glory of the gospel. And in this we glory and rejoice in the hope of the resurrection that even if our flesh would fail and we would die with our eyes and with a new flesh one day we will see you face to face. The one who loved us and gave himself for us. May we rejoice that you are the innocent Christ who then became guilty for us, that we might have that innocence forever. And in that joy and in that surety, may we walk as people bought by your blood. And it's for the glory of Christ alone we pray. Amen.